0: If you wanna learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune into WP eighty-eight point seven Brave New Radio. We got managers, producers, record labels. yeah music what happened john music biz 101 and more yes all right yeah, that's it brave new radio 88.7 wpsc i'm your professor david kirk philp with music Biz 101 and more, one and one and more and with your friend dr esteban oh, we are yes. in nashville tennessee for our dr. great Stephen marconi dr esteban marconi and we want to make sure that you are aware that you are listening to the greatest music biz radio show in the world and also the greatest podcast. Make sure you're going to iTunes SoundCloud, listening to all of these. make sure you going to musicbiz 101wp.com. for the newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Musicbiz 101wP. Our guest today, John Simpson from American University. And much more but we'll get into that in a moment. John Thank Simpson. You. John yeah. Simpson. Our student co-host is Devana Aprivato, getting her MBA in Music Management from William Patterson University. Devana, yes, she graduates very soon. Yes, she's. when you listen to this people live, that she has been a graduate. At the <laughs> moment, she's not a graduate, so she can still screw things up. But we want to give a couple quick thanks. We want to thank the Music Business Association. We're actually doing this on location in Nashville, the Tennessee state, and we uh, have a room 202, and this is where we're doing all of our interviews here, so thank you to Music Business Association. We want to give thanks to Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc., and White Hat Management. With artists like Charlie Pooth, Dave Matthews, and Kiss, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when it's good for you. Not good for us, John. It's about you. And then we also <laughs> want to thank Rob Fusari, the Grammy winner, the good pal, for his support. We're going to hear Don't Let Love Down at the end of this interview. Uh, without Rob Fusari, without Aaron Van Dynamite, we would not have students like Devana Aprovado here at the show so we want to thank you very much we also want to remind you go to amazon.com right now and by managing your band sixth edition it is out it is ready for you so we are here with john simpson who is the executive in residence and program director of the is it the music what do you call it the music business, business and inter- entertainment business and entertainment program program at american university and it also says fox rothschild so yeah,
1: i'm it. of counsel to the firm of fox rothschild so i'm still practicing entertainment law
0: oh, okay all right good so yeah. he is a an attorney so we must watch what we say. Exactly. And uh, this is a short interview because of he charges by the minute. So there's a budget issue. And so those are our two lawyers. There you shows. go. And John, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, John used to manage uh, Stephen Bishop. On not and Stephen on. Bishop, no Steve no. Forbert. Oh Steve Forbert, Romeo's tune. do-do-do. <laughs> yeah. 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 My wrong, yeah. yeah. Steve? And then we uh, Mary Chip Carpenter. Yep. And then you were involved when Sand Exchange uh, became Sound Exchange.
1: Yeah, I helped right. launch it and then ran it for the first 10 years.
0: There we go. Okay. So that's who John Simpson is big deal. He's a big deal. Right. John's here for bits. So Davana Alvarado, do your thing.
2: So, it seems that you've been involved in a lot of different areas in the music business from being a performer to being a manager and in-law. So, tell us a little bit about your background when you first got started in the industry and the professional steps that led you to Sound Exchange ultimately. Sure.
1: Um, uh, you know, interestingly for me, it was seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan that changed my life. Before that, I was gonna be governor of New York. I was pretty clear, <laughs> that was the goal. Saw the Beatles, said, no, I, I think I'll do that. Got myself a Hofner bass and played bass in my high school band. And I was with a really talented group of musicians. Um, fast forward, I was at Cornell and I got offered a record deal to go to London to record my first album. Wow. Um, went to London, recorded with all these great B- British musicians came back, toured a little bit, opened for Jethro Tull on the Aqualung tour. Uh, Again, some of the high school uh, band members of mine, one who ended up playing keyboards in Dire Straits for 10 years, and then with Brian Adams. Another guy was the lead guitar player in a band called Stories, who had a big hit in the 70s called Brother Louie. And you know, so this was a whole traveling group that I grew up with. Um, One of my best friends growing up ended up being a songwriter writing hits for other people. And it was just this really interesting thing. Our lives were completely changed by the Beatles. You know, I, I have no, you know, my best friend went to Harvard, and then after that, I'm a songwriter, right? <laughs> he would never have been a songwriter, if, but for the Beatles. Anyway, um, you know, the, from there, I, I started, you know, working at a label. I produced some records, um, was writing songs that other people were recording, and it was, t- you know, it's a tough life, and, and I'd always had the political side of me, that governor of New York thing, and so I thought, you yeah, know, maybe I'll go to law school, and, and I did, Um sort of finishing up my undergrad in my spare time. Um, It was important to stay out of the draft back then, (laughs) Uh, back in the early 70s.
2: At Cornell, were you studying music? No, at Cornell,
1: my major, I was, well, I I wanted to transfer into creative writing as my singer-songwriter career was uh, kind of becoming a little bit more engaging. and uh, actually in my freshman class was a harmonica player. He was a real traditional blues player. I was more the pop guy, mm-hmm. and his name was Hugh Craig, who, Hughie Huey Huey Lewis. Lewis yes. There we go. Well, so one cool. of my, com- we used to jam back in the day. But anyway, in my sophomore year, I I'd actually been in a state school at Cornell because it was what I could afford, mm-hmm. it was cheaper, but it was called Industrial and Labor Relations, and I was basically studying to be a mediator, a l- labor lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought would be kind of a fun thing to do, and you know, sort of this the plan B if my music didn't work. And then the music was getting more and more serious. A guy from Electra Records had heard me, taking me into the studio. And though it didn't work out at Electra, it was like, oh, the light bulb went up. I should really take this more seriously. Um, let me transfer into creative writing and you know, we'll see where that takes me. Um, and I was writing a lot of songs and, and, and starting to tour a little bit. And um, unfortunately for me at Cornell, if I transferred into creative writing, which is in the liberal arts school, I would have had to pay the difference between my state school tuition mm-hmm. for the two years I'd been there and the private tuition because mm-hmm. I'd been getting a pretty cheap, pretty much a full ride from the state of New York because huh. I, I had regent scholarships. Um, so I left Cornell. Okay. And I actually went to a place that would give me credit um, for going to England and recording my album, and which helped me stay out of the draft. And so <laughs> I got an independent study in, uh, at the State University of New York at Albany and moved there. Mm-hmm. In any event, I was studying a lot of history of film and history of literature, it was kind of wrapped up in American studies, if you will, but I was writing papers on, for example, in the 50s, how white artists would cover black music mm-hmm. um, to have hits on the radio because black artists couldn't be played on white radio, things like that. And so I became you know, a real geek of the history of the music industry, which later served me really well, knowing the history of the performance rights battles of the 20s and 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't realize it was all culminating in my sound exchange um, experience many years later. Um, but anyway, so you know, I, I kind of had this split personality between the creative side and the business side. Mm-hmm. Um, and going to law school, frankly, I actually thought I was going to get out of the music business. Um, I had a really charismatic professor who was a great criminal law professor. He had done the Chicago 7 trial, Angela Davis, one mm-hmm. of the Watergate defendants. He had done one of the Abscam Scam congressmen, the Oklahoma City bombing trial, the second one. And, you know, he was just this incredibly larger-than-life figure, and I thought, oh, I'll go to work with him. And I did a little bit of work for him when I got out of law school. But I realized I didn't like my clients, the criminals. Oh. <laughs> so he was a criminal defense lawyer, and, I, and then all of a sudden all of these folks that I kind of grew up with in the music industry started calling me up and saying, hey, I need help with a contract. Um, So I had to go back and really teach myself. There was no entertainment law back in those days when I was in law school. When was this, 70s? uh, Yeah, in the mid-70s. Okay. Um, There was, you know, I think about some of the programs that exist now at different schools. I would have just, I would have been a studio rat. I would have been in the studio every day just Mm -hmm. recording stuff and, you know, learning about the industry. Uh Um, And, you know, I had some really interesting, odd experiences I produced a congressman. During the Watergate era, there was a congressman from St. Louis um, who wrote a song called "Down by the Old Watergate." I saw him perform it on, like, Mike Douglas, and so I called the label that I worked for, and I produced the record, um, brought him to New York. We had him on the Today Show. Of course, the record never sold. There have been three hits by members of Congress, but this wasn't one of them. But it was a recording by a member of Congress. What
2: are those three hits? The three hits. Can, can, can you guys think about it? I was just trying now, to think. Now,
1: two of them were hits before they became congressmen, and then they went to Congress later in their oh, lives. Well, Sonny Bono. Sonny Bono, Bono definitely Bono. is the easy okay. one, right? Yeah. yeah. From Sonny and Cher. Congressman from Woodstock about 10 years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, from the band Orleans. Oh, John really? John Hall. John Hall, I was just going to okay. say. That. You're still the one dancing. Yeah. And then the third one, no one ever gets. I'm probably one of the few geeks in the world who would know it, but Senator Everett Dirksen in the late 60s put out a single that was this talking thing, uh, you know, all about our gallant men. It was sort of like a Ballad of the Green Berets uh. on steroids. Uh, it's one of the worst records of all time. You should play it for your students. It's called Gallant Men. Um, anyway, so, you know, I produced Congressman William Hungate and um, down by the old Watergate. Uh, his son, David Hungate, was the bass player in Toto. and he's one of the top session players here in nashville um so clearly there was a musical gene in that family right and his dad was very good you know um anyway so you know fast forward i started Mm -hmm. representing artists as a lawyer um and um fell off the wagon a couple of times when one of my clients said will you manage my career and i foolishly made the mistake of saying yes Mm -hmm. you know took a leave of absence from the law firm and manage somebody's career and usually it just crashed and burned even after I'd get them a major label. um, you know, it was just very difficult.
2: What do you think was the most challenging part of being a manager as opposed to the other work you were doing in Uh, law?
1: Well, I think the most challenging first of all, the most challenging thing is getting your first act to break through. Because you can be really smart, you can really have a sense of of artists and great music. um, and But until you have that power of having a star on your roster, Uh um, you know, I just remember how hard it was finally getting a major label to sign one of my acts. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I was fortunate enough to have Mary Chapin Carpenter become a pretty big star. We won five Grammys, she sold 11 million CDs back in the day. Um, After that experience, after her career started to really take off, I was getting sent things from major labels that they'd sign, hey, would you manage this? Hmm. So I didn't have to go find things anymore. I mean, not that I stopped looking, um, but they were being sent to me, and they were already being filtered by, these are things that major labels think are Mm -hmm. potentially successful. Now, having taken an artist like Mary Chapin Carpenter, who, by the way, is from New Jersey, Mm -hmm. you guys Mm -hmm. home state, um, because she was kind of an odd fit in country music, we always got the really difficult ones, you know, like they never sent us the easy—the guy with the hat on the horse (laughs) you know, who'd play 300 nights and make us a fortune, we always got those really hard to figure out artists like, can you plug this in here, can you get this can you do that, but I think, you know, from my perspective, the hardest part about managing um, you know, is just that understanding your artist so thoroughly and being on the same wavelength so that you can take that vision that they have um, and figure out how to plug it in because they're not always the best at figuring out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, there's usually a purity to what they do, and th- they don't want to be worrying about labels. They hate labels, mm-hmm. right? You know, I'm not this. I'm not that. Mm-hmm. Um, right, I yeah. remember one time um, when she got signed to Columbia Records, Mary Chapin Carpenter. You know, the someone at the label said, "Hey, we're thinking maybe we should call her music country and eastern." And we were <laughs> like, eastern. "Oh my
2: God, God!" You know,
1: as opposed to country and western. Since she was an <laughs> Ivy League oh, kid, God, you know, from right. New Jersey, uh-huh. was like, no. You know, so you gotta sometimes just, you know, have the sense of going, no, that's not gonna work. You know, she's a singer-songwriter, that's enough, right? Um, So I think, you know, that I think ultimately is your biggest challenge as a manager, is making sure you understand that vision, then execute it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, and I think you have to be, I think the the real challenge on a day-to-day basis is you can't forget the small stuff, yet you've always gotta be looking at the big picture. And frankly, I had a wonderful partnership because I had a partner who loved dwelling on the small stuff, okay. so I got to think the big picture, and, and that was probably what I was better at um, anyway, um, trying to create, you know, what was the right marketing campaign, what was the right approach to taking something and making it bigger than it was. You know, the other thing about being a manager is that every day is a completely different day than the day before. You know, because some days you're a psychiatrist, and some days you're a travel agent, and some days you're a negotiator. You know, I mean, every day's gonna be different. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. Um, you know, the other thing is you get to pick your clients. Um, so you're not working at a label where all of a sudden you're told, oh, work on this project, and you go, oh, I really don't like that record. And maybe that's a good skill to have, though, to be able to work on something that maybe is not your cup of tea. But for me as a, an entrepreneur, as someone who was trying to start a business, it was like, I only really wanted to work on things that excited me. Right. Mm-hmm. I learned the hard way that if I wasn't willing to get on a table and scream at somebody, that pay attention to this because this is the best thing you, you've ever heard. That it wasn't worth doing because if I wasn't willing to do that, put my neck on the line for it. Mm-hmm. Why was I doing it?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, with the artists that you managed, they <coughs> it would always get to a point where they crashed. It cra- The relationship, I guess, or the crashed and burned. Not, not
1: always. No, not at all. We, um, I mean. I think, you know, look, I think you have to go into any relationship realizing that there is more than likely going to be a time when you're going to part ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the nature of the beast if you look around the industry. But there are some artists who have been with managers for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and So I don't think you, you go into it with that perspective. I was saying if you don't want it to crash and burn, you better take care of all the small stuff because mm-hmm. you'd be surprised what little small stuff can blow up and, mm-hmm. and hurt you. Um, but if you're taking care of the big picture and they're having success typically there's a good relationship there it just keeps going um, but there is a time I think in, in, in careers where you know it's time for the artist to make a change and so I you know managing not is, is obviously a difficult business um, and sometimes you have to make very you know crucial choices um, which may mean family you know wife children that kind mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. um, lifestyle where you want to live um, and um, you know there was a lot of pressure on me, actually, to move here to Nashville, um, and I nearly moved here on three different occasions, 1992, 1993, and 1994, um, and never did, um, and probably was a mistake from the standpoint of not opening an office here. Um, when I had, I was managing probably seven acts who were based here in Nashville. I mean, Mary Chapin wasn't based here. She was still living in the D.C. area, but her career was here. She was signed to Sony Nashville. She was booked by William Morris Nashville. She was published by EMI Nashville. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was here every other week. Mm -hmm. You know, why not move? Mm -hmm. Um, But I had other, you know, I was really more a rock guy and I had other bands that were based in New York. Um, And so for me, being in DC was sort of like the midpoint. Um, And I had a wife who was a doctor who had a practice in DC. So it was just easier for me to stay there and live and commute out of a suitcase. but my wife, you know, we, we, we at one point it was pretty serious. She got a job offer to move to Vanderbilt and be on the medical faculty there, and we were ready to come. And who knows why we didn't end up here? Just one mm-hmm. of those accidents of history. Mm-hmm. Didn't find the right house. Couldn't get the kids into the right school. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that but if that had happened, if I'd moved here, I mean, I, I probably would still be banishing acts, maybe running a label, publishing company, but I never would have had the sound exchange opportunity. That kind of fell into my lap because I was in Mm D.C.
2: Yeah, and that's actually what I wanted to talk about. So after managing, then you were on the ground level of Sound Exchange. So if Mm -hmm. you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Well, if you go back to 1994 when I'm managing Mary Chapin Carpenter uh, and Steve Forbert and others, uh, the Recording Industry Association of America reached out to me and said, hey, we've got a new campaign to get legislation passed to get recording artists paid from radio play. And I said, I'm in, you know, I know the history of this. And I said, yeah, happy to help. Got Mary Chapin, I reached out to Sheryl Crow's manager, got Sheryl Crow on board. Reached out to Billy Joel's manager, got him on board. Uh, it grew to be about 150 artists who signed on to this campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, we finally got passed in 1995, the Digital Performance Right and Sound Recordings Act of 1995, or the DPRA, the shorthand, which gave recording artists in the United States and the labels, their very first performance right of any kind. Now, we didn't get the full performance right. We didn't get radio broadcasters. And in fact, what ended up happening was the broadcasters basically said to Congress, we don't want to pay. We're, we promote. We promote. We help sell records. Mm-hmm. And, but the broadcasters, you know, light bulb went off like, oh, but if digital people have to pay, we're going to saddle our future competitors with a royalty we don't have to pay. So we're going to have a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's what was going on in their minds. They never said that to us. But they came around and said, yeah, we'll help you get a digital right. So they got taken off the table because we couldn't win without them. Mm -hmm. And because none of the digital services were of any strength at that point, none of them really existed for the most part, we were able to get this bill through in 1995 for digital, satellite, and cable. So I was part of that coalition that helped get the law passed. And, you know, had a very good working relationship with the recording industry at, at that time, which mostly was known back then for fighting for, well, gold and platinum records, mm-hmm. fighting for fr- First Amendment freedom, you know, and lyrics and things like that when we had Tipper Gore, you know, mm-hmm. trying to censor artists. Um, and so <coughs> they, they hadn't really gotten into that battle between artists and labels where they hated each other. That oh. hadn't happened yet. <laughs> it was coming, but it, but it hadn't come to fruition yet. So you fast forward a few years um, in the late 90s uh, and they reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you helped lobby for this. We're starting to collect money now. The law took effect February 1 of 96. We've actually got money in escrow. We're going to be building this organization. Do you know anybody who might be interested in coming on to do outreach to independent labels and artists? So we need someone, you know, to do industry relations and... We've already got the major labels because we're the Recording Industry Association of America, and there was some biz dev guy there, the guy who ended up hiring me, mm-hmm. Mike Piers, um, who's just a terrific guy, also a bass player like me, um, and from Liverpool, so mm-hmm. it couldn't have been any better than that. Um, and you know, Mike and I would have these conversations, but at the time, I was actually doing work for another client of mine, Harry Belafonte, and. Harry Belafonte and Chris Blackwell, who had started Island Records, were going to create a label, and I was going to be one of the people running the label. So I was spending more time in New York um, helping and going to Cuba and scouting talent um, around the world um, to build this label, which was going to be world music, Afro-Caribbean kind of jazz, and um, and it was a really fascinating experience. And so I basically said to the RAAA, no, I'm, I'm starting a label, I'm not available. Mm-hmm. Um, about, and then Chris Blackwell left Island and got into a big fight, um, and then Island came to us and said, you don't really wanna be with us if Chris is in here, and we said, that's right, so they let us go, and it took Chris yeah. Blackwell about 18 months to buy Ryko and to, to restart that whole process, and in that, during that process, we lost the artists that we were gonna sign. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I realized, okay, I'm at a label that's not putting anything out. So I called my friend and I said, you still need somebody? Yes. I said, I'll come in and do it. So I started there um, in 2000, and my job was essentially outreach, I can't remember my exact title, but you know, Mar- manager of industry relations, you know, independent label and artist relations. Um, and within it, and you know, I helped name it and helped it get up and running, and then very quickly in that first year, it was determined that I should be running it. And so they asked me to run it, I said sure. So in June of 2001, I took over as the executive director and ran it from 2001 through December of 2010. Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. So, in 2000, things were really changing Mm
0: -hmm. in
2: terms of the way that people were getting music, as you're well aware of. So, how did that change the role and and the different roles of your job at that point?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it was really kind of interesting that you bring that up because we were going through huge change. Um, so in um, 2000, so it was two th- March 1st, 2000, I start working, frankly, for the RAAA, and I was, you know, an artist guy, and this is the trade association representing all the major labels. But I was there to essentially reach out to the independent community and the artist community to get them sign on to get this new revenue stream that was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, in February, the month before I start, there's a huge blow up. Because the RAAA had tried to sneak some language into a bill, actually the, prior, the previous November, to make sound recordings works for hire. Huh. And there's nothing in the copyright law before that that ever specified that a sound recording could be a work made for hire. And obviously the impact of that would be that if they were works made for hire, the record label would own them forever and the artist would never be able to get their rights back. Whereas if they were transfers, 35 years later, the artists would be able to get their rights back. <coughs> so they tried to sneak this language in. Not only did they um, get caught, but hired by the RAAA um, in early 2000 was the guy who had worked at the Senate Judiciary, the House Judiciary Committee, who had put the language in the bill. Mm-hmm. So it kind of looked like a quid pro quo, like he was you know, getting payback for having done this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a huge blow up, and all these artists came to Washington. I was on the board at that time of the Recording Academy, um, you know, the Grammy Board, and Mike Green wasn't happy that I was, you know, in the room at the Recording Academy when they were talking about the work made for hire issue. And I'm like sitting there going, "I'm on your side on this one." I, you know, you know that I'm going to work here f- at Sound Exchange, but this is not. I don't want any part of this. Uh-huh. And it was a really hard place to be. Now. Having said that, I was the very first person ever hired to work at the Recording Industry Association of America that had ever worked in the day-to-day music industry. They had all been primarily lobbyists and legislative people and you know, lawyers, accountants, whatever they had. Uh-huh. But no one had my experience working in the transactional business. And so what was interesting was all of a sudden when there were issues that came up, it would be, um, hey, you know, what does Simpson think about this kind of thing? And (laughs) so all of a sudden Metallica sues a group of universities because all their students are downloading illegally from Napster. mm -hmm. And so University of Indiana puts on a symposium. And I was invited out, well, someone from the RIAA was invited out, they sent me. So I go out to debate Sean Parker, one of the founders of Napster, um, and there were a few other people on the panel, and interestingly, I represented pre- previously a number of singer-songwriters who were based in Bloomington, which is a big music community. So there I am, and I have some of my songwriter friends in the, in the audience and artist friends in the audience, and uh, we have this debate. And I think because I raised my head in that, um, in that debate, about a month later I got subpoenaed in the Napster lawsuit. So they took my deposition, one of the (laughs) shortest depositions in history. But, you know, it was very interesting being involved in a lot of that change in the early 2000s and seeing essentially what really happened behind the scenes with Napster and the recording industry and essentially Napster refusing to to get licensed. Um, And, you know, much, much later after they were going to get shut down, coming to the industry and saying, oh, oh, no, no, we'll get a license now. And it's like, too late. You should have come and gotten a license to start. Because, you know, what's Spotify but a licensed Napster, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe slightly higher quality, because they get licenses.
0: And we have to wrap it up. Oh. (laughs) It was actually pretty good. But you know what's good is right after this, um, we have Linda Blossbaum oh, of Sound Exchange, who will be the second half of this interview. Great. Oh, great. And Linda is actually an adjunct professor in my program. There we go. At American, at American University. University. Yes. So we need to thank John Simpson. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yes. Great. Uh, we need to thank Devana Apravado for making yes. this happen. Thank you very much, Apravado. We need to thank Dr. Stavon Marconi for being who he is.
2: And, of course,
0: my co-host, David Kirk. That is I, and I (laughs) want to thank you for listening. And uh, even though we're halfway through a show, instead of saying hello at the beginning of a show, we say at the end of the show, adiós, Uh, adiós, 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 adiós.
2: All right. Looked at me and cried. Said something broke inside of you. My best friend. Whatever come my way, you know I'm yours until the end.